Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. I'd like to begin with the story, actually it's a legend, uh, an ancient Greek legend of a young child who has observed a sculptor working, as you might imagine, for months at a time to produce a masterpiece of, of this sort. And until one day, for the first time, he discerns within that marble the figure of a horse. And the small child lightens up, eyes as big as you can imagine, and says, how did you know that there was a horse in that stone? And we all kind of smile the naivety of that child. And why do we smile? Because the child does not understand the analogy between art and nature, between God's creation and man's creation. I mean, he thinks that that horse is by its own power struggling in there working with the sculptor. Or perhaps he looks at the sculptor a bit like a rescue worker who is going to take out this horse much like a man would out of an avalanche, you know, firing away, trying to get him out. And yet this naive child has much to say about the distinction of the two feminisms that we will contrast this evening. On the one hand, we have a feminism that grows out of the tradition of atheism as proposed by the great French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who is absolutely convinced that there is no creator, and to be consequent with that, there is no nature. And of course, it is through Sartre's mistress and his most faithful disciple, Simone de Beauvoir, that we have this feminist tradition. On the other hand, and it's a great contrast, growing out of the tradition of the Judeo-Christian tradition, the notion that nature is given. And we have today the tradition of Jean Paul II, the new feminism. 
Now, to get back to our little friend, the child, uh, what's interesting in this is that it's precisely this analogy that scripture draws upon to speak of creation. Instead of a sculptor, we have God as potter, right? We remember in the book of Genesis, the Lord fashioned the man, I'm reading, out of dust taken from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And in the story of the creation of woman, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he takes out a rib, closed it up with flesh, and then the Lord brings to the man, this woman, who says, ah, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she is her man. Now, according to the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, God creates ex nihil, out of nothing. But here we have God creating out of dust and out of a human rib. Why? What is the sense of that? Well, the scripture scholars will tell us he, he wants to show us that man is the summit of creation. So he starts with the separation of the water and the, and the land and leads all the way up to man after the animals. Beyond that, there's even a more terror, um, I'm speaking in French now, <laughs> earthy reason. And that is that we know divine causality only through our own causality. God is so far above man that we speak in terms of analogy. Now we have to remember that the analogy is unidirectional. God, is, man is like God, God is not like man. St. Thomas puts it this way, a statue is not like a man. A man is like, a statue is like a man, excuse me, but a man is not like a statue. And therefore we say that man is God's image, but not that God is in the image of man. Nonetheless, we do speak by analogy, and St. Thomas is the first to do so when, after he presents his whole work on the creation in the Summa, the first volume, he speaks of God, and then God is creator and the work of creation. And then, in the second part, he's going to speak about human action. And to make that transition, he says... Since man is said to be made to God's image, insofar as image implies an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement, now that we have spoken of the exemplar, that is, God, and those things that come forth from his power, as we spoke of creation, it remains for us to speak of his image, man, because he too is principle of his actions, because he has free will. Now, what's interesting here is that St. Thomas doesn't say God is made, or man is made in God's image, as we often hear. It says God is made, or God is made, man is made 
to God's image. And here we get this idea of exemplarity. Man, God makes man thinking of himself. We have this image of God as artist, God creating out of his imagination. What else can he create out of? That's the whole notion of this creation ex nihil. We create out of objects that are already given. God creates from nothing more than his own divine intellect and his will. That is why we can say God creates out of love, because he has no other use or need for you and I than to love us. Now, to get back to our little friend who's observing this, this great artist, he recognizes something within the artist that we recognize within God, and that is the power to give life. This, this horse that's no longer there, that horse that's moving out of the stone is very much like the human person who in St. Thomas's commentary on creation says that when God rests on the seventh day, he does not stop working. What happens is that now he has given forms to all things and through those forms, he draws all creation to himself. He who is the good will lead all things to the good but always in cooperation with the creation he has made. And he is a genius who can understand this analogy, that the artist is always limited by what is already there. And God creates out of nothing and makes to be so that the be, the one who is, becomes creator. That is why Michelangelo speaks so strongly when he speaks of his sculpture as Forza de Lavare, the power of lifting up as if that was in fact what he did to tear away stone until there came forth what was already there, the beauty that was implied in the stone. Now there's, in turning to Michelangelo, I have another idea, and it is this. Michelangelo left us with a group of, of uh, sculptures that were incomplete, and yet this was some of the impression he wanted to give, because these were destined as a monu funeral monument for Julius II, Pope Julius II. The project was eventually abandoned, and that's why these figures were never completed. However, the idea was to leave them somewhat raw, in the raw, the idea that these figures were trying to break out of this stone, an image of the Platonic idea of the soul breaking forth from the body. Well, these two figures I would like to propose 
are a marvelous image of these two feminisms. On the one hand, we have Atlantis, who bespeaks this feminism of Simone de Beauvoir, this need to break out of the oppression that nature would create to woman. It is woman's misfortune to, and this is, this is Simone who, who speaks, it is woman's misfortune to be destined to give life. And so she must rise above the act of prolong, projecting life and lead into the challenge of risking life as do the male. And then we have, on the other hand, the sleeping slave. Something about the sleeping slave speaks a little bit to me of the mystery of creation because of the passivity that is involved. Here you have the human person who is awaiting the hand of the creator to become what he has always been within God's mind for all creation. Now, the first of these feminisms I explained to you grew out of the existential uh, philosophy with just extremely, uh, profoundly atheistic of Jean-Paul Sartre, who recognizes freedom as an absence of constraint and thus of any preconceived notions of truth, beauty, goodness, anything that would draw us out of ourselves as an external force, because that force must come from within the self. So for Sartre, to be free means that man is freedom, and that means he is his own creator. As for Beauvoir, already at the age of 19, she wrote in her diary, I don't want my life to obey any other will than my own. In contrast, we have the new feminism of John Paul II, who suggests in his uh, encyclical Evangelum Vitae that we need to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of life of society. Now, he says acknowledge and affirm, not to create, but to bring out the beauty that is already there. The emphasis is on the creator and on woman who cooperates with the project who she is in God's creation. We're motivated by, again, the desire to cooperate with the divine art of nature. John Paul II, <clears throat> this is the question that motivates our search. It's a question of understanding the reason for and the consequences of the creator's decision that the human being should always and only exist as a man or a woman. It is only by beginning from these bases which make it possible to understand the greatness of the dignity and vocation of women that one is able to speak of their active presence in the church and in society. It's an entirely different optic, going to try to understand, to discern why God created us this way. Now, of course, we need to leave aside the androgen, those who are born with ambiguous sexual traits. The exception does not make the rule, as it does in the 
philosophy of Judith Butler, because there are people born blind, we cannot presume that blindness is natural to the human person. Nonetheless, there raises the question of nature itself. <clears throat> For Sartre, we can no longer say the ancient formula, ordo ascendi est ordo vigendi, which is the basis of much of the metaphysical tradition. The order of nature is the order of action. We act in accord with whom we are. Jean-Paul Sartre will reverse that. We make ourselves to be. The human, human nature is nothing more than the projections of human actions and human freedom. Now here we go, Sartre says with regard to human freedom, there is no human nature since there's no God to conceive it. Not only is man what he conceives himself to be, but he's also what he wills himself to be. Man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. As for Simone de Beauvoir, she'll take this even further. The base of existentialism is precisely that there is no human nature and therefore no feminine nature. It's not something given. Man is defined by his presence to the world, by his consciousness, and not by a nature that grants him a priori certain characteristics. Now, not surprisingly, Jean-Paul Sartre will also deny the analogy of nature and art. However, he understood it well. And I want to read this for you before we take a look at what St. Thomas says. When we conceive God as creator, he's generally thought of as a superior sort of artisan. Whatever doctrine we may be considering, we always grant that when God creates, he knows exactly what he's creating. Thus, the concept of man in the mind of God is comparable to the concept of paper cutter in the mind of the manufacturer. And following certain techniques in a conception, God produces man just as the artisan, following a definition and a technique, makes a paper cutter. Thus, the individual is the realization of a certain concept in the divine intelligence. And you might say that sounds pretty simplistic, but here we have St. Thomas saying pretty much the same thing. God is the first exemplar cause of all things. And again, he couldn't teach otherwise because the tradition of creation is that God creates ex nihil. So if God is going to create, where is he going to create from? Everything exists within the divine intelligence. And so for St. Thomas, the exemplars are here in God's intelligence. God, everything is there. So if he is going to produce a determinate form in matter by reason of the exemplar before him, um, it must be within him. Now, it is manifest that things made by nature receive determinate forms. The form is what makes a thing to be. And this determination of forms must be reduced to the divine wisdom as to its principle. For the divine wisdom devised the order of the universe and therefore, we can say that the, in the divine wisdom are the types of things 
which we call ideas, exemplar forms in the existing of the divine mind. You know, that may sound a little crazy to you, but when my kids are looking through photo, old uh, photo books and they say, where was I in 1998? And I say, you were in the mind of God. Here's just a, a beautiful image of that from Chartres Cathedral in France. This is a depiction, an artist's depiction of God imagining Adam before the creation. Now, this denial of human nature and of the concepts in God's mind, because there is no God, is the basis, in many ways, of Simone de Beauvoir's classic feminism. One is not born, one becomes a woman. And of course, the challenge for Beauvoir is to allow a woman to create her own identity, not one that's imposed upon her by man. <clears throat> it's rather ironic, however, that behind this great woman, there is a man, Jean-Paul Sartre. Her thought is never far from him. And she, too, rather than following the ancient tradition of ordo ascendius, ordo agendi, we act in accord with who we are as a nature. She will argue that <clears throat> we create our identity. And that is why she must break out of the anatomy is destiny theme that she has become so big in feminism. We could hardly be further from the metaphysical tradition that literally metaphysics means that we transcend the physical domain, that nature is such that it goes beyond itself, that is constantly striving further, that it is constantly going further, that it is, and that each one of us is called to become who we are. We are not born a woman, we become a woman, and yet we are born a girl. That is the challenge that lies before a new feminism. What Beauvoir is challenging, in fact, is the traditional distinction that dates back to Aristotle between male and female. The male animal, is one which generates in another. The female generates within herself. Simone says her functioning as a female is not enough to define woman. Woman has ovaries, a uterus, and these particularities imprison her in her subjectivity, circumscribe her within the limits of her own nature. It is often said that she thinks with her glands. Of course, again, the problem is with the assumptions that are being made about nature as being fixed or static. And we will come back to that when we treat the new feminism. But now I want to just go a little closer into Simone de Beauvoir's classic feminism. I would say there are two components, and that is the, the need to break out. And I keep thinking of Atlantis, that's the slave that's caught in the marble. <clears throat> the need to break out of social constraint, 
the projection that we have upon us, the, the expectations, uh, all that hinders us from realizing our identity. And the second one are bodily constraints. <clears throat> and the two work together because the bodily constraint, biological determinism, as, as the tradition has come to call it, is precisely the instrument that is used by a male patriarchy, so goes the, the narrative, that then allows for woman to be oppressed. You must stay home because, as Simon says, you have ovaries and, and a uterus, and you are going to take care of babies. Well, in responding to this, I love these images, also from Michelangelo, uh, also a part of his tradition of the, the slaves that were part of that funeral, the funeral monument. The we have here the rebellious slave <clears throat> and the dying slave. And these two slaves are great images of the biological determinism and the social constraint that we're woman is trying to break out of. But I, I just want to begin by insisting that this, this idea of slavery is not one that I'm pulling out of the hat. It comes directly out of the pen of Beauvoir, who is working within a Marxist tradition. So she writes, in truth, woman has not been socially emancipated through man's need his sexual desire and his desire for offspring, which makes the male dependent for satisfaction upon the female. So it would seem that because man needs woman, he's going to treat her well, but she's not been emancipated by that. On the, on the contrary, and she makes the image here, the master and the slave are united by a reciprocal need. And in this case, economic, which does not liberate the slave. Now, woman has always been man's dependent, if not a slave. And the two sexes have never shared the world in equality. Man the sovereign will provide woman the liege with material protection and will undertake the moral justification of her existence. Thus, she can evade at once both economic risk and the metaphysical risk, and I underline this, the metaphysical risk of a liberty in which ends and aims must be contrived without assistance. You know, we could pass that by really quickly, but what she's saying is that he would like to give her a liberty that's defined because liberty here already has an end. Your freedom has an, a purpose. Simon says, the minute you say my freedom has a purpose, you have just denied my freedom. And yet in the metaphysical tradition, there is no freedom without purpose. Purpose is precisely what motivates freedom and makes freedom to be. We are made for happiness. And without that goal, we will never be free. Now the rebellious slave. Oh, that's the dying slave. Let me take the rebellious slave first. Where is he? There he is. He is the one right here. 
Now, this rebellious slave is hardly complacent. He's struggling to get out of the marble. He's against everything that weighs down on him, his own body, the projections of cultural construction, as I said. And so the two parts of this feminism are the philosophical attempt to surpass and even demystify the human body and its sex, and the attempt to surpass the social construction. So let's look at the first one. She is simply what man decrees. She is with reference to him. She's incidental. She's the inessential. She is the other. She's been created by him. Woman's misfortune is to be biologically destined for the repetition of life. But it is not in giving life, but in risking life that man is raised above the animal. And that's why superior, superiority has been accorded to the hum, by humanity, not to the sex that brings forth, that reproduces, but to the one which kills the sex that goes to war. Here we have a key to the whole mystery. The female, to a greater extent than the male, is the prey of the species. The human race has always sought to escape its destiny. And there again, woman remains in her maternity, closely aligned to her body like an animal. Now let's look at the attempt to surpass the social construction of woman. This is the famous phrase of Beauvoir. Let's put it in context. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. No biological, psychological, or economic fate determines the figure of that human female present in society. It is civilization as a whole that produces this creature, intermediate between man and unique, which is described as feminine. Only the intervention of someone else can establish an individual as other. Insofar as he exists in and for himself, the child would hardly be able to think of himself as sexually differentiated. Kind of have to laugh at that one because I was really opposed to giving my boys, any, my, my boy, anything that would resemble a weapon. And I didn't. And I didn't need to. He created weapons out of everything he found. <laughs> Let's turn to a new feminism. Seeking to understand the creator's decision. First component in this feminism. Now, John Paul II basically said, it's left to women to create this new feminism. And it was a challenge. You need to go beyond the traditional feminism and the, the temptation to enter into male domination. So women go to it. Encourage, a, a, encourage woman to be who she is. But he gave us some pretty hefty tools. And the first one that... Father Allen knows well, for those of you who know Father Allen, is John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Now, this goes back to the metaphysical tradition as well, because 
For John Paul II, to speak of the theology of the body is to speak of the language of the body. The body speaks. What does it speak? It speaks of God's mind. It speaks of God's reasons. Um, the, the, the key word in the metaphysical tradition is ratio, which means many things. The purpose, the intention, the, even the goal. <clears throat> Why did God make us as such? And the, the challenge to speak of the body at, in a theological terms, to think of the body as speaking a language, implies two things. Because the language always implies a spoken word, but also an ear. I mean, language is a means of communication. So the body speaks, but it must speak to someone. And if there is a reason, a purpose, that is conveyed by the body, that has to be captured by the human intelligence. And we use the same word. God's purpose, ratio, human reason, ratio. The human body is intelligible. It speaks. What does it mean to be intelligible? It speaks to an intellect. And these are the key factors is that in metaphysics, we speak of a reality that can be captured by the human intelligence. It's not that the world exists here. The world exists here, and because it exists here, it exists here. And so the classic tradition always spoke of truth as an adequatio. An adequatio means that there is an equilibrium between what is known there, the object that is known, and what is known subjectively here. And if there is an adequatio between object and knower, then more profoundly, and this is very much St. Thomas, there is an adequatio between the divine intellect and the human intellect. And now we have the underpinnings of a theology of the body because God speaks to man. And how does God speak to man? Well, of course, there's the whole biblical tradition, right? But Beyond that, and more fundamental still, before the Bible was ever written, God speaks to us in the mystery of the world that he gives us, which is impregnated with his mind and purpose. Why is it impregnated with his mind and purpose? Because the ideas that exist here, whereby he creates, become form in the creatures who we are. I am informed by God's meaning. God created me with purpose. I know you and you are mine. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, a future full of hope. 
And St. Paul writes to the Ephesians, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that we may walk within them. Is there determinism here? Well, it's precisely this that determines our freedom. God has given us the very means whereby we can become who we are. And this body that bespeaks what God's reasons is constantly speaking to me of God's purpose for me. And this body, of course, is constantly speaking in so many ways because I cannot think without my body. I cannot know without my body. I cannot project without my body. I cannot have plans without my body. And at the same time, I know that I am created for communion. So the second component of this feminism, um, because we're looking for God's reasons, we're going to try to go back to make sense of what it means when scripture says a helper fit to him or a helper fit for him. Both adjectives can be used and both adjectives are important and have a different nuance. Fit to him um, capitalizes a little more on the sense in which she has been suited for him, made for him, created for him. She is a gift for man. And for him is precisely that giftedness. And when we speak of gifted, we can remember that in two ways, right? I love the idea that gifted means both datum and donum. It is given. We can't change it. It is, it is real. This is it. This is it. This is the world in which we live. It is given. <laughs> but it is given gratuitously. Donum. Given so that we might receive gratefully. And so that we may become who we are. And so woman given to man, to what end? Well, God knows, and we are to try to decipher that, understand, and live that in our own lives. Is it to cultivate the earth? Would seem so. What's interesting is St. Thomas says, a man would do a better job. <laughs> I'm not so sure when it comes to cleaning the house. On the question of procreation, now that's a given. That's obvious. But that is not alone. It cannot be alone when we're human. To serve him? This is the sense in which Beauvoir will reduce the biblical message. Woman given to man so that she can become his slave. And not surprisingly, because John Paul Sartre is constantly speaking of this desire that we all have to reduce the other to an object, 
to objectify the, uh, the other because the other will always be a threat to my freedom. When freedom comes for me, when I invent my own freedom, when freedom has no other end but the end that I give him, it, the other will always be a threat. So what else can a man be for woman when she's coming with a lover who's teaching such a thing? She is for his utility. Or in the sense of John Paul II, she reveals his humanity to him. And this is where I'm going to have to stop because I am at the end of my time limit. I'll just end with this quote from John Paul II. It's a question of a help on the part of both. And at the same time, a mutual help. It's not just that woman helps man, man helps woman. To be human means to be called to interpersonal communion. The man, whether man or woman, is the only being among creatures of the visible world that God, the creator, has willed for its own sake. And that creature is thus a person. Willed for its own sake. There's no utility here. Again, God doesn't need me. He created me out of pure love. The animals he did create with the utility because he says in scripture, he gave them to the man to rule and dominate. Being a person means striving towards self-realization. I'm just not have a determined end. I also determine my end within God's providence. And here he makes reference to Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council. He says, man can only realize himself in becoming a gift. That's a quote, through a sincere gift of self. The model for this interpretation of the person is God himself as Trinity, as a communion of persons. To say that man is created in the image and likeness of God means that man is called to exist for others, to become a gift. And I can't help but just throw this last one in here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> for a human being, this is Carl Y.T.Y., John Paul II, uh, in the 60s, long before his pontificate. He wrote, for a human being is always first and foremost himself a person. And in order not merely to live with another, but to live by and for that other person, he must continually discover himself in the other and the other in himself. That reciprocal aspect is very important. Love is impossible for beings who are mutually impenetrable. Only the spirituality in the inwardness of persons create the condition for mutual interpenetration, which enables each to live in and by the other, to enter, that is to say, into the other's interiority. I just want to leave you with one thought. Entering into another's interiority in the spiritual sense that's implied here of love is something like 
what God does for us with these designs that he has, these divine ideas. To enter into another's interiority is to enter into their life project. It is to enter into the mystery of God's plan for their lives. Just as I allow the other person to enter into God's plans for my life. And it means cooperating together to become who we are for ourselves, for one another, and most ultimately, for God. Thank you very much.